And we continue this morning with our look at this incredible chapter in a series we've entitled The Hall of Faith. As God, once again, as we had stated, has given us various illustrations and examples from the life of Old Testament individuals, showing and demonstrating to you and I how an individual interacting with God by faith can see God in an extraordinary way. We've put it this way, God using ordinary people in extraordinary ways for his purpose and for his glory. And as we continue our walk through the hall of faith, we've of course paralleled it to walking through a hall of fame. And as we get to each individual, we look at the inductee to the hall of faith and learn from the example in which is provided for us there in our text. And we've made our way all the way to the 24th verse of the 11th chapter of Hebrews as we continue to stand in, the, uh, in front of the exhibit of Moses, of course, a huge character in, in the Old Testament. I think most people know of Moses. They probably think that he looks like Charlton Heston uh, if they're of, of an older generation, or maybe that he's more like the Prince of the, you know, Prince of uh, uh, Egypt you know, from the cartoon version that came out more recently. But Moses is known by so many. But there are many points in the life of Moses that are brought to our attention because we can learn dynamic things from these moments, these examples. Again, please let us understand that no matter who is mentioned here, Abraham, Noah, Moses, these were all ordinary individuals that God used in extraordinary ways. They became who they were, not because of themselves, but often despite themselves. They often had to get out of God's way before God could do all that he wanted in and through them. And today we come to an aspect of the life of Moses that is mentioned here in our chapter, in our text, that really should speak to all of us today concerning not only a choice that I think all of us are faced with and need to make, but also confront us on one of the most uh, internal necessities of our Christian life. And that is understanding our personal identity in Jesus Christ. Much of the confusion in our society today has to do with personal identity. We are no longer asking what are called uh, uh, extra... Uh, um, uh, we're not asking external questions any longer. We're asking internal questions. And the big question that many are asking is, who am I? And part of the discussion that we mentioned earlier that individuals are having is they're trying to find themselves within their identity. When I have an opportunity, and I consider it a blessed opportunity, to speak to someone who holds to a lifestyle that I may disagree with for biblical reasons. And they are willing to sit down and talk with me. And in fact, when we, when we begin to interact and they hear that I'm a pastor, they often first say, well, I don't know if you realize this, but I'm a homosexual man and, and I know that you totally uh, are out on that, so you probably don't want to have anything to do with me. And the very first thing I ask this gentleman is that, well, is that the totality of your identity? Is your sexual preference your total identity in which I should engage with? 
Isn't there more to you? You got a favorite color? You got a favorite movie? You got a favorite song? All of these things have to do with who you are. You are not just simply categorized and stereotyped into what one particular uh, category and therefore I know everything about you that there, is ne- that there is needed to know. And then I would say to him, and I've actually done this, I, I've said to him, I said, if I would have began our conversation instead of introducing myself such as a pastor, which he did ask me my occupation, I said, I would have never thought for a million years to say to you for the very first thing, well, I'm a heterosexual. Who are you? Well, I'm a heterosexual. See, no one would start out a conversation like that. This is something that our world does, doesn't it? We like to categorize people. We like to put them in different boxes, and then we feel comfortable with them, and then we can choose to interact with them or not based upon our, our understanding of what category that they fit within. That is such a shallow perspective of people, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus Christ, I know that a person, apart from God, still holds the remnants of the image of God. As C.S. Lewis stated, that, you know, often the individual apart from God doesn't see or understand who they are in God. And as a result, sometimes when we deliver the gospel to them, then God begins to chip away and to show them that underneath it all, they were still formed in the image of God. We need to look at people differently as Christians. We certainly do. We need to do a better job in our dialogue and and communication with people. We need to do a much better job at that. But that being said, this whole thing has to do with identity. Moses couldn't continue in his faulty identity. He came to a point in his life where he said, I cannot go on in this faulty identity. I need to make a change. He did this later on in life when he was older. This wasn't something that he decided on a whim. He wasn't an adolescent or a child at the time in which he made this decision concerning his identity. It states very clearly that he was grown up. And he made a choice. And that choice was to be true to his true identity. For Moses had found himself in an extraordinary situation. As the Pharaoh, who did not know the Jewish people and did not act kindly towards them, passed an edict that all male children should be uh, killed at the moment of birth to suppress the numbers of the children of Israel, who had resided there for over 400 years in Egypt and had become a demographic in and of themselves of a certain social class of people who were uh, vastly condemned to slavery. But Pharaoh started to look upon their numbers and that he began to be troubled by them. Starting to realize that they outnumbered the Egyptian people and if they chose to rebel against Pharaoh, they would succeed. So he passed this edict. And as we read last week, when this edict was passed that all the male children should be destroyed, the parents of Moses hid him for three months until they could hid him no longer. And after that, they brought him to the river, placed him in a basket. 
sent him down the river Nile and there at the river Nile worshiping God, their God at that moment was the daughter of Pharaoh who pulled out this basket. She took him to be her son, calling him Moses, one drawn from the water and raised him as her own. And Moses, from the time he was three months old to the time that he was 40 years old, for Stephen tells that in Acts chapter 7, that the text that we're reading, the event that we're reading about this morning, took place when Moses was 40 years old. He no longer could live within this false identity that he had been given. No fault of his own. This wasn't something that he brought upon himself, but he couldn't do it any longer. He needed to be true to himself. He needed to be true to who he actually was. Now, of course, when we start discussing actualities, when we start to discuss who an individual actually is, we are proceeding from the viewpoint of a biblical worldview and who God has created them to be. The world says we can define ourselves any way we want to define ourselves based upon feeling, comfort, and so forth. But the Bible says something much more different. It says that God created us from the beginning and gave us a purpose and a plan for our existence. We sinned, we fell against God, and we separated ourselves from God. And in the exercise of free will, evil then was uh, created, and now it is rampant within our world and society. And what we see today is what we have sown earlier, and that is we are reaping the effects of our departure from God. So when we talk about who we are, we are talking about it from a biblical worldview because the world can do, uh, decide who you are. You can decide who you are based upon an arbitrary understanding of the world and so forth. And I say it that way because I believe that the only non-arbitrary way of looking at the world is through the lens of Scripture. But that being said, Moses came to a point where he could no longer live in the manner in which he was. And we start in verse 24. And it says again, we begin with our famous two words, by faith. This is the catalyst in which moved Moses to do what he did, his faith. But his motivators are found in verse 26. When he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward rather than the moment. At 40 years old, Moses came to the realization that something was wrong. And if you'll track back with me, because again, as we had stated earlier, history is important. Let us go back to Acts, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 2. And as we travel back to Exodus chapter 2, in verse 11, we have the account of this story. Now, scholars all agree that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, 
Genesis, Exodus, etc. And so Moses' writing of his experience here in verse 11 of chapter 2, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man, uh, he said to the man in the, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the things, the things he has done is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. That's the account of what we are going to be looking at today. It became apparent to, to Moses that he wasn't an, an Egyptian. We're not sure how that apparency became known to him. But as he started to understand and it began to be revealed to him that what had happened and what transpired and what had taken place, he understood now that his true identity lay within the Jewish people there in slavery there in Egypt and not there within the house of Pharaoh. Being a Pharaoh's daughter, it was most likely that he was in line one day to possibly occupy the throne itself. It was most likely, historians tell us, that when Pharaoh drew him from the water, she believed that he was a blessing from the God of the Nile. And of course, that would have given him legitimacy within the eyes of Pharaoh and the people for his, uh, of course, his uh, exaltation to the throne itself. But Moses knew differently. He knew that something was wrong. Was it his physical appearance being so different, that of his mother's, and not knowing who his father was, etc.? But it appeared that Moses began to understand that God had a greater plan in mind for him than for him to simply be a son of Pharaoh. Now, we say that in passing. We say that very, uh, you know, uh, quickly, and we, we, we just run right through that, and kind of flippantly, we just say, oh, son of Pharaoh. But that was his entire identity at that time. He was a prince of Egypt. He was treated like royalty. He was given enormous responsibility and authority, he had access to wealth that is completely unimaginable and probably unbelievable. For in fact, historians still to this day do not know how much wealth the Egyptian pharaohs carried into Egypt during their time of power in the world. They have no idea of how much wealth they actually uh, accumulated. In fact, it might surprise you to know that today in the world, one of the wealthiest persons that it's still to this date, and not through business means, but through family and position in the world that has more power than you could possibly believe is uh, Prince Charles in England. Nobody knows how much he's actually worth. 
But that being said, this is what Moses had. He could do whatever he wanted at any time that he wanted. He had a sovereignty in life, the ability to do whatever, whenever he wanted to do something that you and I could never, ever identify with. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus said it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And I believe that the reason for that is that money gives an individual the impression that they are sovereign apart from all else. Money can allow you to do things that maybe other people without money cannot do. And it's very deceitful in its leading. It may present itself in a way to show that it gives you opportunities and, and, and uh, uh, doors that may not be otherwise open to you. Uh, through your wealth, you can obtain these things. But yet it's fleeting. It's temporary at best. Moses had access to all of that. And yet something was restless within him that he could no longer remain within that false identity. Notice with me in verse 24, I want to bring your attention to a few of the words that are used here because they are so profound. When he talks about refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he is talking about an understanding of conviction. His inner conscience will no longer allow him to lie to himself about who he is. Now, when Joseph came into Egypt and God used him there, Joseph was not required to deny his identity as a Jewish man. Moses, though, found himself in a position where one could not live without the other. He couldn't be the prince of Egypt, in line of the throne of Pharaoh if he identified himself as a Jewish man. That just never would be allowed to happen. It was either one or the other. And in his refusal, full well knowing what this meant, and that's why the writer gives us that information that he was grown up. He was of mature mind. Of course, then Stephen tells us that he was 40 at this time. He full well knew what he was doing. This wasn't just a whim. It just wasn't something that he was acting upon at a a knee-jerk decision in an emotional moment. This is something that had been calculated in his heart. This is something that has been purposed. And he no longer could allow himself to be identified with Pharaoh as a son of Pharaoh. I like what one said. Dr. William MacDonald, he said in his adult years, he made his choice. He would not hide his true nationality to win a few short years of earthly fame. The result, instead of occupying a line or two of hieroglyphics on some obscure tomb, he is memorialized in God's eternal book. Instead of being found in a museum as an Egyptian mummy, He is as famous as a man of God can be. And in verse 25, it is because he chose. Notice this word. This was a calculated decision that he made in a rational state upon the convictions of his heart. Full well knowing, notice the next word, rather he chose to be mistreated and identify himself with 
accompany himself with. And then there's this interesting phrase, the people of God. It is interesting because the writer of Hebrews is writing to individuals who were Jewish and had become Christians in that first wave of Christianity through Jerusalem. You find this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. And they were welcomed within Jerusalem at this time, but that welcome wore thin. And the people and the religious leaders of Jerusalem began to persecute these new founded Christians. Again, threatened by who they were and their reluctance to uh, submit to the religious authorities of the Jewish uh, religious leaders at that time, they were then dispersed into the Gentile regions around Israel. And when they arrived there, thinking that they would escape the initial persecution of the Jewish people, they faced a second wave of persecution from Nero and the Romans, ending up as nomads, really with no identity, no home, no wealth, simply scattered amongst the wilderness of the regions of Asia Minor. And as they found themselves in that position and place, they began to say, what is the point? Why not just chuck it all in and go back to what we were once doing? At least we had a homeland. At least we had an identity. Let's just walk away from Jesus, go back to Judaism, and everything's going to be fine once again. But the, writers of Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it is, is saying, no, there's nothing to go back to. Jesus is it. And he is reinforcing this by giving them numerous examples of people that lived in such precarious positions and places by faith and were willing to suffer in their lifetime for the overall greater glory of God. And so writing to these people they are now being reminded that the position that they found that are, find themselves in from being persecuted by the religious leaders and also being persecuted by the Roman Empire, this state of nomadness, this uh, lack of personal identity and nationalism is exactly what Moses chose for himself. Moses gave up everything that the world would have to offer to allow himself to identify with the people of God. Yes, you find yourself in this position because of persecution. Please know that your hero Moses did this willingly. He decided to forsake all that he had uh, grown accustomed to for the purposes of being mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. We can't even vastly for a moment understand or identify with the children of Israel there in Egypt. They would work as slaves for 10, 12, 14 hour days in the heat of the sun. There was very little rest. It was very common for people to die there in the mud pits as they made the bricks for the cities that uh, Pharaoh was constructing to be left there amongst the mortar, to be uh, sandwiched between bricks that were being brought together, stones, foundational stones that were being brought together. A life of an individual slave was worth absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of the Egyptian empire or a kingdom which is more pronounceably uh, rendered. 
Egypt was experiencing a zenith at this time. It was called the period of the new kingdom of Egypt. The wealth, their, uh, their military force, their uh, accumulation of land around Egypt, their uh, ability to conquer easily uh, the surrounding nations. Uh, they were at a zenith in their existence at this time. He literally had access to everything a person in this world would want and yet chose to be true to who he was internally and that was a child of God. And he's going to identify himself with his people forsaking all that he had been given and willing to be subjected to the same treatment as all of those others who are called the people of God. And notice how he compared it, the writer of Hebrews. That the sufferings of the people in God were a greater choice or a preferable choice to Moses than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This world has a lot to offer in the sense of worldly things. And you see that people can gain immense wealth, they can gain immense power, they can gain immense fame and fortune, of course. They can be uh, known around the world as a, uh, a dictator or a leader, and they can have people you know, uh, submissive to them and so forth. The world has a lot of worldliness to offer. But Moses saw the worldliness of this world as a temporary thing. If you were to enjoy good health your entire life, the average life today is mid-80s, early 90s, maybe. And that's due to the assistance of medical advancements in technology in which we've made. But if that's all that is there to life, 90 years, then yes, I would say go for everything that the world has to offer because this is it, right? And that's the way people pursue it. But if there's something more, if there's a meta-narrative, a big story above it all that shows me that this is solely temporary in the grand scheme of things and it could be, it's going to be very short-lived. You know, for example, I'm going to be honest with you all, I'm going to turn 50 this year. I don't know how that happened. I literally remember 40 and 30. I was devastated at 30. 40, I thought that's it, plan for retirement. Now I'm at 50. I have no idea how I got here. And I cannot tell you that I was ever prepared for how fast I got here. But if I'm already halfway done, and I see that maybe 30 years is more given, or 40 at the best, with the assistance of medical intervention. That's a pretty short life, isn't it? But Moses looked at eternity. Moses saw the big picture in his heart and in his mind. And by faith, 
he was moved to make the choice in which he did, saying, I'm not going to put my confidence in this. I'm going to put my confidence in this. And that's what he did. And as you continue on, you start to see that whatever the world had to offer, Moses saw the reward of suffering for Christ greater wealth than anything that this world has to offer. Now, does that sound like a radical statement to you? It does to me. But again, if I am to calculate the value of something as a believer in Jesus Christ, should I not calculate its value upon the Word of God rather than just my own personal arbitrary reasoning of how I value something? As one wrote, he says, Moses was a prince, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He had everything that a person on earth could want. Education and knowledge, fame and wealth, possessions, estates, power and authority, position and duty, purpose and responsibility, and even a home in which he was loved by the daughter of Pharaoh herself. And yet Moses renounced the status in which he rejoiced and enjoyed in Egypt as a member of the royal household. He could not identify himself both with the Israelites and with the Egyptians. He had to choose one over the other, and he chose the people of God. His identity and who he is because of who God said he was, he is being true to that and allowed therefore, to make this decision. This wasn't a nationalistic decision. It was a decision of faith in God that allowed him to identify with the people of God. Notice what he says in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, that's interesting, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was not motivated by instant gratification or looking to simply be satisfied in the moment. He was playing the long game in life. He knew that whatever God had for him was the very best, and that's what he desired and wanted. Even if it meant leaving all of the precious treasures of this world to be personally identified with those suffering here in this world, he found that to be a greater wealth to consider himself to be reproached with the reproach of Christ. Now, this is very interesting. See if you track this with me. Moses, in his first attempt to deliver his people, failed miserably, didn't it? Well, we just read it in Exodus chapter 2. He tried to intervene. He killed an Egyptian. He tried to intervene a second time. And they were just like, really? Really? You're going to try to uh, help us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Pharaoh got word of it, and it caused uh, Moses to flee. So in his first attempt, even though he was the deliverer of his people, he failed miserably, right? That led him to suffering and to be exiled out of Egypt, then running to Midian, But then 40 years later, now at 80 years old, while in Midian, he sees a bush burning that is not consumed by the flame, goes before that bush only to discover that it is God appearing to him 
instructing him now to go back to the children of Israel and to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh. He's now resistant. He doesn't believe he can. I don't have the physical abilities to do so. And God just says, listen, I am who I am. I'm going to be all that you need to do it. And when people ask you who I am, just say, I am sent you. It's going to be a work of God. In his second coming to Egypt, he effectively delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt through 10 plagues, correct? And as those 10 plagues came upon the uh, Egyptian people, it loosened the grip of Pharaoh, culminating, of course, in the death of the firstborn, the Passover. It loosened the grip of Pharaoh and the people were delivered. Now, Let's go back to think about those individuals first reading this letter who have lost everything because of persecution, who now find themselves as no man's, just simply scattered amongst the wilderness of Asia Minor. You're telling us that Jesus is the Messiah, but all we saw was his suffering. Very few actually followed him. Uh, Yeah, he rose on the third day, But why is the world against us? Why are things happening in the way that they are? Why is he not delivering us in spectacular glory as we always thought he would? Why? Because he's waiting for the sequel. Jesus coming back the second time. Just like Moses the first time suffered, so did Christ suffer. The second time when Christ returns, like Moses' return to Egypt, Christ will be completely effective in his redemption of the entire world, won't it? Redeeming those who are his and judging those who are not. Just as the Egypt was judged under the hand of God then. The people at that time would have saw this parallel. They would have identified with it and it was meant to be an encouragement to them. Oh, I get it now. See, I was just looking at the small picture. I just saw Jesus suffering at the hands of the Romans. I I didn't put it all together. Now God, as I pull back and I pull the lens back a little bit and I see the bigger picture, that's exactly what happened to Moses. He failed miserably. Or it appeared that he did. Now Christ never failed, right? It just seems to the world, to the Jewish people, that he didn't accomplish all that he was meant to accomplish. But that's not where the story ends, right? Moses came back a second time. Our story with Christ doesn't end with his uh, ascension into heaven there in Acts. It climaxes with his return to this earth where everything is going to be put in order as it should be. And as it encouraged them, it should encourage us today. You and I are going to have to make some decisions as Christians, specifically in the world in which we live today. Are we going to be true to our true identity? If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you are a Christian and you are a child of God. And therefore, the Bible asks you, the text asks you this morning, will you identify with the world or will you be willing to choose and identify yourself with the children of God? That's a question that only you can answer. That's a question that you have to wrestle with each and every day. Moses forsook it all and refused to live in contrary to his true identity. Will you do the same as an individual? Will you be willing 
to lay down these things of the world, these temporal pleasures for the eternal glory that God may have in store for you. Number one, we must decide who we are today. Often I was told that, well, I'm just going to kind of ride the fence to kind of see where it all leads. That fence is gone, okay? That fence has been torn down. There is no more fence to ride. Jesus said it this way, and if you think I was just being harsh, he said, either you're for me or you're against me. What fence lies there? Either you're going to be true to your identity, you have to make that choice in who you are. Secondly, you must then identify with who you are. Fully knowing and understanding the consequences that it may reap against you. But understanding that you're doing it for a larger purpose. It's not merely to obtain and to enjoy all the pleasures of this world. It is therefore to glorify God, to uh, inherit the rewards that He wants to give us for all eternity. If you will, I want to close with these words from Jesus. I don't think there's any better authority to close with than him in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. In everything that we have just discussed, think of these words with me this morning. As Moses, again, did what he did. And by faith, that was the catalyst, but the purpose was the reward in which was waiting for him. Believing that the reproaches of Christ were of greater value than the temporal rewards of this world. But Jesus said it this way. In chapter 6, verses 19 and, 20, he, and 21, he says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is basically telling us that the rewards, the treasures, the things that we accumulate here on this earth are temporal in nature. That's what he's saying there. But he goes, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Permanent, eternal treasures. Verse 21 is key to all of what we are standing today, or saying today, excuse me. Talk about identity. Listen to what he says here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is key. Because where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. And you can live for this world and for the pleasures and the moment, uh, momentary, uh, you know, you know, momentary pleasures in which they bring. Or you can live for God. This is Christianity. Christianity is not meant to simply be a supplement to everything here on this earth to be accessed as if, as if we would access a, a vitamin or a medication in our time of need. Christianity is an identity. And the one that we are to represent and to identify with is Jesus Christ himself. And the questions before us are certainly meta-narrative questions, big story questions. Because I conclude that the only reason that Moses could do what he did was because of his full, confident trust in God.
And as a result, he made the choices that he made. The same choices are presented to you, maybe in more micro manners, but they are still posed to us. Will we glorify God with our lives in our decisions in which we make that ultimately we make decisions, right? But ultimately decisions make us. And I love what that one historian wrote. Instead of a few lines of hieroglyphics, Moses is now remembered in the annals of the scriptures eternally themselves. Incredible thought. Moses made a tough choice. It took faith for Moses to give up his place in the palace. But he could do it because he saw the transitory nature nature of the great wealth and prestige. It is easy to be deceived by the temporary benefits of wealth, popularity, status, and achievement, and to be blind to the long-range benefits of God's kingdom. How many Christians today would choose personal sacrifice or oppression rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin? Faith helps us to look beyond the world's value system to see the eternal values of God's kingdom. We must choose friends, careers, lifestyles that please God for the eternal purpose in which God has set before us as his children. Father, we come before you this morning.